This evening we're going to be considering the election of grace, the election of grace. We're looking at chapter 25 in Genesis, and again it's a a fairly big chapter, and there's a lot in there, and you could probably tell from the reading, we're not going to look at the whole chapter, just selected parts of it. Even so, we're going to be looking at three generations of people, Abraham, his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob, three generations. And they're very significant, those three people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is something I realise, like a a record that's stuck, Uh, it's probably going to come up time and time again in this sermon, and so even if you don't don't remember anything else, hopefully you'll remember what I'm going to say now, and it will stick in your mind. Um, that is that the promises of blessing um, for every 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 family of the earth. That doesn't mean every single family. It's talking about people from every part of the world, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Spiritual blessings were given. The promises of spiritual blessings were given to Abraham and his seed. Now the seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's given to us very clearly in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Galatians, chapter 3. So, blessings that have their fulfilment or their realisation in Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. But also we see that that same promise is reiterated and given to uh, Abraham's son Isaac, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also Jacob, Jacob as well. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're all in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed, the promised seed. And all blessings, the everlasting, eternal spiritual blessings are through faith in the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Looking at Abraham, basically we're going to consider his death this evening. We've seen a lot of Abraham in our studies in Genesis, but we'll be saying goodbye to him this evening, looking at his death. Isaac, there's there's not a lot said about Isaac, but we will see something concerning Isaac as well in this chapter, and also the birth of Jacob, and what that actually means. We're going to go over to the New Testament and look at what it's all about. The Apostle Paul again, he brings it all together and he gives a, an explanation and teaching in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 9, of what it, what it, the significance of what we're considering in Genesis and, and what we're considering tonight in Genesis chapter 25 concerning Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and their seed. Okay, so back in Genesis chapter 12, as I say, when the Lord brought Abraham out of his land, Mesopotamia, and he made those promises to him. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord said to him, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared to him. Unto thy seed will I give this land. Well, 
Abraham had been brought out of the land of Mesopotamia and he was now in in Canaan. So in the immediate context that's speaking about Canaan and the promise was that unto Abraham's seed would the land of Canaan be, would be would be given by God. But there was much more to the promise than the giving of Canaan to Abraham's seed. For example, in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, as I've already said, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now that takes us way beyond that little strip of land, Canaan or modern day Israel, all families of the earth shall be blessed. We've got to think way beyond Canaan there. We've seen that that promise of far more extensive blessings expressed in terms of blessings being conferred to a multitude that no one can number, like the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. Again, that tells us it's got to be much more than the giving of the land of Canaan. When you're talking about who can number the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore? No one. We've also seen that those greater blessings are through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because, again, as I've said, he is the promised seed of Abraham. And that's made very clear in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, seed singular, which is Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the seed of Abraham, but you are counted to be the seed of Abraham if you are in Christ, baptised in Christ, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour. We've also seen that the promises of God to Abraham are in the lineage of Isaac, Abraham's son, who was brought forth by Abraham's wife, Sarah. For example, in chapter 7, Genesis 17, verse 19, the Lord said to Abraham, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. The Lord said that a year before Isaac was even born. The Lord made it very clear that those blessings, those promises would be in, would go, um, come through Isaac and his seed before Isaac was even born and then when Isaac was born the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 21 verse 12 in Isaac shall thy seed be called couldn't be clearer as such there can be no doubt whatsoever that Jesus would most certainly descend from Abraham and his son Isaac in accordance with God's great plan to confer salvation blessings such as the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life upon a vast multitude that no man can number.
of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. Needless to say that Ishmael was not in the lineage of the promises of God. Despite being born to Abraham, Abraham was the father of Ishmael and Ishmael uh, was brought forth by Sarah's handmaiden. So Abraham's wife Sarah, her handmaiden, she brought forth a child for Abraham, but he was not a child of promise. The promises were in Isaac and not Ishmael, even though Ishmael was 14 years older than his brother Isaac. So what that means is that the tribes of Israel who were given the land of Canaan, they did not spring from Ishmael. Neither did the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, spring from Ishmael. The Lord did, however, bless Ishmael, as can be seen in chapter 25. We didn't actually read those verses earlier on, but chapter 25 gives details of 12 princes that were descended from Ishmael. Also, if we take a quick look, if we were to look at chapter 28, verse 14, looking ahead a little bit, the Lord said, And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and and in thee, and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Those words were not spoken to Abraham, he was dead by then, neither were they spoken to his son Isaac. They were spoken to Isaac's son Jacob. In in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The Lord said that to Jacob. And and the Lord would, as we, we'll see one day when we get to it, if the Lord tarries, the Lord gave Jacob the name Israel, changed his name to Israel. And Jacob was the father of the tribes of Israel. But this is all according to God's plan. Abraham... Isaac and Jacob, whom God named Israel. And ultimately, from them sprung, or many hundreds of years later, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his humanity. So, stringing all of that together, Jacob's sons, Jacob's son, Jacob, also known as Israel, his sons were the twelve patriarchs of Israel, the nation of Israel that was given the promised land of Canaan and God made them his own people, his peculiar people. He took them from all the nations of the world, although they were no better, indeed they were fewer than the other nations, but God loved them because he loved them and because of his promise to Abraham that he would give them the land of Canaan. And and we see this um, being fulfilled through Jacob who was called Israel. Beyond that, the seed singular of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, stroke Israel, was born of a virgin 1,700 years after Jacob's death. After that prolonged and protracted introduction, which I I hope hasn't confused you too much, we'll now briefly consider Abraham, his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob whom, as I've said already a few times, would later be called Israel. 
First of all, we'll take a final look at Abraham. Verse 1 in chapter 25. Then again, Abraham took a wife and her name was Keturah. Now, I don't know how you read that verse 1, but let me tell you that it doesn't necessarily mean that Abraham married Keturah after the death of his wife Sarah. It, it might be nice to think that, but that's not necessarily what the verse is saying. It may well be that Abraham took himself Keturah to be his wife while Sarah was still alive. When you consider that Abraham was an old man of 137 years of age when he, when Sarah, his wife, died, and according to verse 2, if you add it up yourself, you'll see that Keturah, she, she brought forth six sons to Abraham, six sons. The likelihood is that Abraham took Keturah to be his wife quite some time before Sarah ever died in order to produce six sons from Keturah. At any rate, Keturah is described as Abraham's concubine in 1 Chronicles chapter 132. And maybe that would, that's more understandable to think of Keturah as being Abraham's concubine as opposed to his wife. A concubine was on a lower level than a wife. Apart from anything else, though a concubine, as a concubine she shared Abraham's bed, their children, the six children, did not share the inheritance. In verse 5 and 6 it's written, And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac, but unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward into the east country. Perhaps you can understand that, if you understand that concubines, plural, that would have been Hagar, one of his concubines. She bare him Ishmael. Another concubine, Keturah. But, and, and she bare him the, the, the sons mentioned in verse 2. But they didn't stand to inherit anything. And that's why we read that Abraham gave them gifts, but he gave all that he had unto Isaac. Isaac is the one who received the inheritance, not the sons of all the concubines. Although it would seem that concubines were commonplace in the Old Testament, for example, King Solomon, how many concubines did he have? 300? As well as his 700 wives? It was nevertheless a departure from what God had declared at the beginning when he said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. You know, we don't put our finger over that verse and pretend it's not there. It is there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. One man cleaving to one woman together as husband and wife. The Lord Jesus Christ reiterated those words in Matthew chapter 19. So if what applied back in the time of um, Adam and Eve when one man shall cleave 
leave father and mother, cleave to his wife and they will be one flesh. If that applied in the Garden of Eden in the time of Adam and Eve, and it also applied, I don't know how many years later, in the time when Jesus was in the world, surely it applied in all the time in between those two times. From Eden through to when Jesus was in the world. Why Why imagine for one moment it didn't apply some uh, during the time leading up to it? Furthermore, it applies now. No reason to think it doesn't apply now. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Despite Abraham's polygamous relationships, in violation of the word of God, we see that as always, God's decrees prevailed with Isaac the child of promise receiving by divine appointment all that Abraham had and not the sons of his concubines. Everything went to Isaac. Before we move on, what applied at the beginning, right up to and including the time of Jesus, and what applies now, what it actually means is that marriage relationships consist of one man cleaving to one woman, and the only thing that can bring an end to that relationship is death. Death of one of the spouses, nothing else. In accordance with the word of God. That sacred marriage relationship instituted by none other than Almighty God at the beginning. That's something that this world seems to have lost sight of. Last of all, concerning Abraham, we see in verse 8 that when he died, he was gathered to his people. Now that's interesting, if you see that there. Verse 8, then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Well, where was he when he died? He was in Canaan. Where were his people? 500 miles away or so in Mesopotamia. He wasn't taken to Mesopotamia. He was buried with Sarah in the cave at Machpelah in Hebron. So what does that mean, being gathered to his people? It's taken by many of the commentators to mean that when Abraham died, he was taken up to his heavenly rest. Whereas that was not necessarily the case with Israel, uh, Ishmael rather, who according to verse 17, he also was gathered unto his people when he died. We don't know about Ishmael. I'm not going to play any guessing games as to where he is now. But certainly Abraham, we can say that when he was gathered to his people, he was taken up to um, the to heavenly glory. And he was taken to heavenly glory despite any sins that he had ever committed. And that is because his acceptance before God was in the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in in previous weeks I've mentioned various things that Abraham did that perhaps shouldn't have been done. 
deceiving Pharaoh, then deceiving Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gerar, when uh, he hid the fact that he was Sarah's husband, and so on, various things, and 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 here taking for himself concubines. But at the end of the day, you won't see any of this in the New Testament. Because like the rest of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, our acceptance before God is in the Beloved. It's in Christ. And, 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 the, Lord, and the Lord loves us, not because of anything we've done or haven't done, but he loves us because he loves us and because of his promise to Abraham. All of you who have put on Christ, having been baptised into Christ, same as Abraham, a sinner saved by the grace of God, you have the certain hope of entering your heavenly rest when you die. In fact, Jesus has gone a place to has gone to prepare a place for you, hasn't he? How wonderful that is! Jesus says, "In my Father's house are many mansions. If that were not so." I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus said that to his disciples. And surely that's still applicable now. He's gone to prepare a place for his redeemed, those he laid down his life for. It's not a hope that is dependent upon you living sinlessly, which is just as well, since we all sin. Every one of us comes short of the glory of God. Rather, you, dear Christian, you you have that certain hope because your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, has paid the penalty for all your sins at the cross, having sinlessly kept God's law on your behalf throughout his earthly stay. Now and forevermore, your acceptance before God is in Jesus, who loved you and who gave himself for you. That doesn't mean to say that you now have a license to sin because you're accepted in the beloved son. It doesn't mean to say you just go and do what you want to. I trust, dear Christian, that uh, you hate sin. You abhor sin. And when you do sin, not just against God, but against your heavenly father, you seek forgiveness as you thank God. For Jesus Christ, your Lord and Saviour. Well now consider Isaac. Look at verse 21. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. It's already been seen in the previous chapter that Abraham sent his trusted servant on a very long camel ride to his kindred, to his family in the city of Nahor in Mesopotamia to get a wife for Isaac. I told you it was an arranged marriage. Isaac's marriage was arranged by his father Abraham, but ultimately, as we see, it's a marriage that was arranged in heaven. Uh, Isaac's marriage to Rebekah. And sure enough, the servant returned the 500 miles or whatever it was from Mesopotamia to um, 
Canaan, to Hebron in Canaan, with the beautiful Rebecca. And even though they travelled all that far, it was pointed out last week that being attacked by bandits or having their journey somehow sabotaged was never going to happen. It simply wasn't going to happen. Nothing would ever bring, nothing would ever sabotage that journey because Rebecca was handpicked by God to be Isaac's wife and to give birth to Jacob through whom the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. That's clear from the prophetic words that were spoken by Rebecca's family before, as they were saying their farewell to her, before she made that epic journey uh, from Mesopotamia to, to Canaan, where she, she um, married Isaac, before she set off, her family said to her, Thou art our sister, be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. Prophetic words, and um, thousands of millions, certainly not speaking simply of the tribes of Israel that were that received Canaan, the land of Canaan. This is speaking about those who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all of history. The problem was that Rebecca, who was to be the mother of thousands of millions, was barren, as we see in verse 21. She was barren, she couldn't have children. Just like her her mother-in-law, Sarah, had been barren. However, unlike Sarah, who took matters into her, uh, into her own hands when she provided Abraham with her handmaid Hagar to produce a, a son, we see here in verse 21 that Isaac, he entreated the Lord, he prayed to the Lord for his wife Rebekah that she would conceive and have a son. And that takes us on to our third and final consideration. We shall consider the birth of Jacob, looking at verse 22 and 23. And the children, this is when Rebecca's pregnant now, the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. In answer to Isaac's prayer, not only did Rebecca conceive one child, but two. She had two sons inside her womb, who who were referred to as nations, two nations inside her womb. One of those sons was Jacob, who would become Israel. As for the other son, Esau, his descendants would constitute a nation that was called Edom, which was located in what is now um, Jordan, on the east side of the River Jordan, and also the southern part of Israel. If you look at a map now and see the southern part of Israel and Jordan, Edom spread over those two areas. Even in Rebecca's womb, there was a foretaste of the enmity, the friction that would eventually exist between 
those two nations, Israel and Eden. In verse 23, the Lord gave notice of the conflicts between the two nations, declaring that the elder shall serve the younger. In time to come, when the Lord delivered the children of Israel out of captivity, if you follow this in the book of Numbers, um, when, when the Lord delivered, had delivered Israel out of captivity in Egypt, they met with opposition on their way into the promised land of Canaan. They, they, they sought permission to pass through the land of Edom. Edom was already established as a kingdom, um, long before Israel, it would seem. It, the children of Israel, they'd only just come out of captivity and they hadn't yet taken possession of the promised land of Canaan. But anyway, so they encountered Edom. They sought permission to pass through their land along the king's highway on their journey to the promised land. And Edom said, no, you come through here and you, you, you've got problems. They would not allow the children of Israel to pass through. So even then, we see that there was going to be problems between Israel and Edom. However, in time to come, Edom would be subjugated or brought under the control of Israel. Many years later, under King David of Israel and King Jehoshaphat, um, Edom was finally subdued and under control under the control of Israel. But can you see that? Look at verse 23 again. The Lord said unto her, unto Rebekah, two nations are in thy womb. One of them's Jacob, stroke Israel. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people. The elder shall serve the younger. The elder is Esau, who was the father of um, Edom, the, the nation of Edom, which Israel had so many problems with and battles with, wars with. And Esau was the younger, the older son. He was born first, but even when he was born, Jacob held on to his heel as if I'm going to get out first here. He didn't. But even there, you see that friction between the two brothers. And that was seen in the in, in years to come in the, the nations of Israel and the nation of Edom. But more than that, the Apostle Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, goes into why God chose Abraham's son, Isaac, over his older half-brother Ishmael. Remember, I told you Ishmael was 14 years older than Isaac. Why God chose Isaac and why God chose Jacob over his older brother Esau. And from that, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 9. And we can, we are finished with um, Genesis chapter 25. I want to Look at Romans chapter 9 to get an explanation from the Apostle Paul now. And this has, that, this has application to all of us. Romans 9 verse 8. 
or, or verse 7, verse 7, sorry. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children in Isaac, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, Paul's talking about Jacob and Esau in their mother's womb here, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, unto Rebekah, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, and it's written in the Old Testament, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So, when Sarah was old and barren, she conceived and she gave birth to Isaac. He was a child of promise. Emphasis on her being old and barren. She'd taken things into her own hands and she'd given Abraham, her husband, she'd given him her handmaid, Hagar, have a son by Hagar. He had a son, but no, that is was not God's purpose. And God's purpose stood. Many are the devices in men's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will prevail. God's purposes are unchangeable and unchanging. And though she was old, she conceived and gave birth to Isaac, the child of promise. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Uh, So that's Furthermore, Isaac's son Jacob, he too was a child of promise, despite being born after Esau, albeit seconds it would seem. They, they, he was hanging on to his brother's uh, heel when Esau was born. God's favour being upon Jacob and not Esau had nothing to do with what the two brothers would ever do or not do. God didn't look down the corridors of time or anything and see Jacob. He's going to be a, he's going to be good. I really think he's going to go places that one. But Esau, he's going to be a bad lot. And none of all that stuff. It nothing to do with what either of them would ever do or not do. God's favour was upon Jacob long before he or his brother were born long before they had any chance to do any good or evil, and God's choice was not dependent upon what they would do in time to come. Quite simply, as it is written in verse 13 here, in Romans chapter 9, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Some people have a problem with that. This is what we read in the scriptures. Some people, they like to say, well, actually, hate doesn't mean hate there. But as far as I can gather, hate means exactly that, the word hate. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What can be deduced from the fact that God chose Isaac, 
who was conceived and brought forth when his mother Sarah was old and past the age of childbearing, that God chose him and not his brother Ishmael, and also the fact that God chose Jacob, whom he loved, and not his twin brother Esau, whom he hated, is that God has respect to nothing other than his own good pleasure and his own purpose. How about that? Sounds good to me. God had already decreed that in the lineage of Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come with all the families of the earth being blessed through faith in him. Nothing was going to change that. Nothing at all. Paul's explanation in Romans chapter 9 strips away any fanciful ideas that you or I might have that salvation from sin and being a child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are in any way dependent upon human endeavour or upon us making a decision for Christ. Look at Romans 9 verse 14 through to 16. What, this is, uh, this is immediately after saying, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Verse 14 now. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It's all about God. God who shows mercy on whom he will have mercy, compassion on whom he will have compassion. We saw something about the Lord Jesus Christ being moved with compassion this morning. God being moved with compassion for that widow who had lost her son, whose son had died. We've seen that God is moved with compassion and now we say now we see that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will have compassion not on everyone but on whom he will have compassion salvation from sin everlasting life are in no way procured by your will or your efforts. They are entirely due to the mercy and good pleasure of God. Entirely. 100%. That doesn't leave even 1% due to you. So much so that all who receive Jesus as their saviour from sin were chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame in love acceptable to God in his beloved son and there are those that will say um, that this, uh, God's not fair this just is not fair that God should choose some and not others but then you'd have to appreciate that if it was left to us you and I would never 
be trusting in Jesus Christ as our saviour from sin. Because again, as we saw this morning, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Have you ever seen a dead person do anything? If you're dead in your sins, you're not going to make a, a decision for Christ. It's God who will have mercy, on whom he will have mercy. God being moved with compassion, raising people up from spiritual death, having chosen them before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame before him in love, accepted in his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be God from start to finish. It leaves no room at all for any, uh, no room for us to glory or to boast. There'll be no boasting in heaven for many of us who belong to Jesus. Therefore, all of you who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour from sin, and you have a testimony of God's love for you, being manifested at the cross where the incarnate Son of God poured out his precious blood and laid down his life as he carried away your sin. You praise God for his mercy and his compassion upon you long before you were born, before the foundation of the world, when he chose you for salvation. I'll let Spurgeon have the last word. He said, you have no room for, for boasting, for the sovereignty of God most effectually excludes it. The Lord's will alone is glorified, and the very notion of human merit is cast out to everlasting contempt. There is no more humbling doctrine in Scripture than that of election, none more promotive of gratitude, and consequently none more sanctifying Do not be afraid of it, but adoringly rejoice in it. Amen.